Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome to the Roaring Twenties. Before we get into today's show, I want to tell you about something really cool we got going on here at Lions of Liberty. Our good friend, the godfather of the Lions of Liberty, Howie Snowden, mentioned a few weeks ago, he said, you know what, guys, it would be cool if we had a Roaring Twenties t-shirt. You know, Lions Roar, Roar! And it's the Twenties. It's 2020. So it's like the Roaring Twenties all over again. But it's going to be better this time because we have the internet. And because you have the internet, it means you can support great podcasts like Lions of Liberty. As a way to support the Lions of Liberty, we have created a Roaring Twenties t-shirt that is freaking awesome. You can get this t-shirt if you join the Lions of Liberty Pride for $10 or up. Just on top of all the other benefits you get at those levels, you're going to get a a, a free t-shirt. But you you don't even have to join. For $10 up. You can join at the $5 level and we'll give you a sweet discount. Pick up one of those t-shirts, get the other stuff. You get access to the Pride, our Facebook group, all the bonus content, all this incredible stuff that we have. Check it all out. Patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here on Felony Friday, we focus every single week on exposing injustice in the broken criminal justice system. And this week, we have a very, very important episode. I don't want to banter or waste time. I want to get to this interview as quickly as possible, so I'm going to dive right into it. The show notes page for this episode, you can find at lionsofliberty.com slash FF211. I'm going to link to a very important uh, article that has been written about the case uh, we're going to be talking about, so check that out. This is episode 211 of Felony Friday. I'm going to be interviewing a woman by the name of Lauren Reynolds. I'll introduce her in just a minute. I want to point something out, though. Uh, There is a legal proceeding going on here. Lauren, along with 13 other women, are suing uh, the United States government uh, for abuse that they suffered and endured while they were um, in prison in Florida, federal prison in Florida. So throughout the interview, um, I'm interviewing Lauren, and her attorney was also on the call. Uh, His intention was just to listen in, but about 30 minutes into the interview, it became very apparent that uh, I wanted him to uh, to chime in. I think Lauren did too, to give a little more background on the case. So about 30 minutes into this interview, uh, you're going to hear from Lauren's attorney, Jim DeMiles. So this is a very, very important interview. Don't want to waste any more time. Let's get right to it. My guest today on Felony Friday is Lauren Reynolds. Lauren was sentenced to 12 years in prison and served nine and a half years. Uh, Nine and a half years for felon in possession of a firearm. She's here today to talk about and share her experience uh, in federal prison and to draw attention to the abuse and the horrible conditions uh, that she witnessed while in federal prison. Lauren, welcome to Felony Friday. Thank you so much for having me. 
So, Lauren, uh, a friend of mine, a former guest on this show, uh, Holly Hooten, reached out to me about your about your story and about a uh, an article um, that you were a part of uh, getting out there, which was uh, published in the Miami Herald, which I will uh, link to on the show notes page. But really, the article <clears throat> was really telling, told a pretty crazy story about things that are going on <laughs> behind bars, um, yeah. especially at this federal prison in Florida, which we can get into that stuff. And I want to spend most of the show talking about it because it's so important. Uh, but before we do that, just so my audience can get to know you and get to know about your background and your story, if you could just kind of start out and just share you know, some details on what your life was like growing up uh, before you were arrested, what part of the country you grew up in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I was born in Shelby, Ohio. It's a very small town in Northeast Ohio up by Lake Erie. Um, my mom got tired of the small town life. So we moved out to Irvine, California, where my mom reconnected with her high school sweetheart. Um, he had a really great job. We ended up moving to Dallas. I was raised in a upper middle class family in Colleyville, Texas. I played sports. I was on honor roll. Um, you know, I had a really good life. I didn't struggle anything I wanted. I had, so, um, you know, things were really easy. I graduated high school. I went to Oklahoma state university. I entered as a freshman and, um, I started experimenting with drugs, going to college parties and, you know, I kind of just fell off going to class. So when I came home, you know, my parents are like, look, you dropped out of college, you need to fend for yourself, basically. So I got a, you know, minimum wage job, I was waiting tables, and I really wasn't able to, you know, make ends meet. So I started running drugs from Mexico to, uh, to Dallas, and I got caught, I was 19 years old. I was on an indictment with like 86 people. I went to federal prison for 13 months. I was pushed through the system. Um, nothing really changed for me. I thought that it was, was a joke. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you. That, no, that 13 fine. months, was that, a, was that a plea deal then? Yeah, it was a plea deal. So I got out. I was out what, for what was one that? year. What, Go ahead. What was that first? So what was that, those 13 months? What was that it prison was, experience um, like? It was, uh, I had a drug I got a marijuana charge. Um, I was just kind of pushed through the system. I did most of my time in the county jail because people were um, doing plea deals. So our uh, sentencing date kept getting pushed back, kept getting pushed back, kept getting pushed back. So I did most of my time in a county jail. I ended up going to um, federal prison in Carswell, which is Fort Worth, Texas, for like three months. So, you know, I just kind of sat there, did my time, got out. So I was stuck in the same position. I started dating a guy and his family business was running guns. So with the first case, I kind of got pushed through the justice system. I wasn't rehabilitated at all. So I started committing crimes again. So I got arrested for felon in possession of a firearm because I was still on probation and I was sentenced to 12 years in federal prison. Now, um, the gun charge carried a five-year mandatory minimum. However, the judge came down harder on me. He told me pretty much he didn't feel like I learned my lesson. And so I was about to go away for a really long time. So I got 10 years for the gun charge, two years for the probation violation, and they were ran consecutive. And how, how old were you at this time? 
uh, at this time I was 23 years old. So when you say that your, your boyfriend at the time you were running guns, what, what did that, you don't have to go into details, but what did that entail? Was that um, basically finding people that could pass a background check, have them lie on an ATF form, and um, the guys would take the guns to Mexico. And I was um, actually finding the people to buy the guns. In Mexico? No, in the United States, in Dallas. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so it was an ATF operation. So you get sent away to prison for for 12 years. You'd served previous prison term but it was only it was only i mean any time in a federal prison is i shouldn't say only it was less than that much less three months of federal prison plus county jails so what was your attitude going into it were you um really i didn't have a changed mindset at all um the big thing for me is i wasn't rehabilitated i wasn't offered any services um no counseling nothing to get to the root issue of why i was doing the things i was doing um, people with shorter sentences kind of just get pushed through the system. You're a number, head count, whatever the case may be like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, getting out, I had the same exact mindset, you know, you have to eat, you have to have a place to live. So if you're not rehabilitated and you're not given those tools for success, you're going to get out and do the same thing again. Did you have any support after that first sentence um, from, you said your family, after you dropped out of college, they kind of said, you know, you got to fend for yourself. Did you have support from family or from, from loved ones then? Um, when I got, when I got out the first time, um, obviously I wasn't gone very long and no one saw a change in me. So they were still hesitant Mm -hmm. and, you know, being directly involved with me because they really didn't know what my mindset was or what my state of mind was. So obviously I was struggling. Right. And a lot of people aren't, you know, given the tools or given the um, support for success inside, you know, the prison walls. They're there to beat you down, make you feel less than. So there's really no genuine rehabilitation. Right. Yeah. Like one of the common threads that I see interviewing people who've been through the system is a lot of the ones that have a successful reintegration are the ones that once they also including the time that they're in, but once they get out too, they have a support system in place to help them along with that reintegration because there's such a lack of, of anything on the, uh, on the inside. Right. Right. And as far as, um, mental abuse and things like that, I'm sure the men have it a lot harder than the women do. Um, because that lack of empathy for men, you know, calling them names, calling them, you know, pieces of shit, whatever the case may be. So I can only imagine, you know, what they go through. Mm-hmm. So you have this much longer sentence and I think you told me before that you, you served the time in three different. Yes. I was, in, so, I was in three different institutions. I started my time out at FCI Walsika in Minnesota. Um, when I got to Minnesota, you know, I, I was devastated. I was 23 years old. I thought I was going to be in there for the rest of my life. Um, you know, I was by myself. I was with murderers, rapists, baby killers, you know, everybody you can think of people that are never going to get out of prison again. Um, you know, in there, there's a lot of broken women. A lot of the women in there, you know, were in the entertainment industry or they've gone through mental trauma, sexual trauma. So there's a lot of broken, hurt people in there. It's Mm -hmm. a, it's a very, very sad place to be. 
um, I got into a horticulture program because my points were so high. I had to go to an FCI first. So I did the horticulture program so I could get to a camp, which, um, the closest camp was Bryan, Texas, which is outside of Houston. Um, there's about 900 people there. I transferred to Bryan. Um, I had a great experience at Bryan. I got a cosmetology license. They have lots of counseling programs, um, self-help classes, things like that. So I started participating in those. I uh, was a volunteer puppy raiser for three years. I did the HVAC program. I did a lot of programming to keep myself busy. I also started doing college correspondence classes mm -hmm. that my um, family was assisting me with because um, the Bureau of Prisons really doesn't help you with outside education as far as obviously we can't get Pell Grants or anything like that because we're in prison. But um, I was fortunate enough that, you know, I proved to my parents by doing all those prison programs that I could handle the, the demand and stress of actually working on my college degree while I was still incarcerated. Mm -hmm. So while I was at Bryan, I got my associate's degree in business management through Ashworth College. They're strictly um, pen and paper correspondence. Um, I had the education supervisor proctoring all of my exams. So, you know, he helped me with that. And my parents were talking about leaving Dallas to retire in South Florida. So I thought, hey, you know, they offered for me to start over and move to Florida with them. They had seen the change in me. Our relationship was growing. There was trust being built again. So I decided to go to Coleman, Florida. So so you initiated that, that move. Right, right. Um, the... Bureau of Prisons has a policy if you're within 500 miles of your house, you know, you're supposed to stay within 500 miles. My parents already had a condo in Florida, so I used that address to actually transfer before I was released. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I'll never forget is about, I was already designated to go to Coleman, Florida. And my mom emails me and she was like, hey, have you seen People Magazine um, this week? You know, she's a loyal people reader. Mm -hmm. And so finally, when one of the girls got a People magazine, I opened it and it was an article about the Coleman female staff suing the Department of Justice in the Bureau of Prisons on a sexual harassment lawsuit that they had filed. And I read the lawsuit or the article on the lawsuit and I was like, well, wow, you know, I, I can't believe that's happening to them and administration, you know, didn't do anything about it. And so I just, you know, kind of, I kind of brushed it off. Cause I was like, Oh mom, you know, I'm sure it happens, whatever. So in March of 2018, I got transferred to Coleman federal prison. And two days after I got there, um, Anyone that's listening that's been to federal prison, there's a lot of um, coveted jobs that you have to be at that institution for a long time to get those jobs. Two days after I got there, I got um, what's called a trust fund job. They're the highest paying jobs on the compound. And um, I went to go work for this officer. And so to get to get one of these jobs, you're saying you have to be there for a while and you got it pretty quickly. How were you able to do that? Yeah, I actually worked that job at the other institution. And so when I got there, you know, started meeting the other inmates, you know, first question is always like, oh, where'd you come from? What'd you do? Mm -hmm. And so one of the girls that lived in my unit, you know, worked in that department. And she's like, oh, you know, we need somebody. We need somebody. Come, 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 come. So 
I went and talked to the officer. I, um, you know, applied for the job, talked to the officer. And so he told me, you know, oh yeah, you can come have this job. And so I started working down there. Um, it was at an outside warehouse, you know, things were very relaxed. They supplied everything for all five institutions because, um, Coleman has five different institutions on the property. They have two penitentiaries, a medium security, a low security, and then the camp working camp. Mm -hmm. And so I was working at the outside warehouse where there's minimal supervision. There's about four or five officers that work out there. And during my whole prison experience, um, you know, a lot of officers would make comments about my looks or my body or, you know, that I, I was appealing to them. And it was kind of, you just kind of laugh it off. You know, you don't really say anything. You don't address it because they're the officer, you're the inmate. It's kind of a distilled fear in a way because, well, if I say something, I'm going to lose this job. And if I have this job, then my parents don't have to send me money. You know, there's a lot of, mm -hmm. a lot of thoughts that go through your head. It, so, you said when this happened, did this just happen to Coleman or had this happened to previous stops too? Um, and Brian, they would make comments, you know, to inmates about them being pretty or the way that they looked. But um, Coleman was the first time that I actually experienced abuse where the officer actually crossed the line. Um, like I said, I don't want to get into too much detail with it, but just to give the backstory. Um, I, I guess, and, I guess we, we, we should say that there is a pending lawsuit. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, I, yes. I'm currently so the, suing the Bureau of Prisons. Yes. So there's um, the lawsuit is what? 14 women. Um, ranging in age from 30 to 56, nearly all first-time offenders have banded together to sue, and they're uh, alleging abuse uh, they've endured at the at the hands of the Bureau of Prisons operated camp. And I guess what is it, seven of the women are still incarcerated. Yes, there's seven that are still incarcerated. Five are currently at Coleman. Okay. So what? When was that suit filed? Um, the intent to, the notice of, uh, to sue them was November of 2018. Okay. Just to give the listeners a little background, um, Priya was, um, established in 2003 by George W. Bush. It was basically federal funding to research program and do technical assistance. And the goal in PREA was to prevent, detect, and respond to sexual abuse in the prison system. Now, PREA was not actually enacted by the Bureau of Prisons until 2013. So there's that big gap right there. Um, basically, the way that the Bureau of Prisons gets away with this is when abuse is reported, they actually ship the inmate and by shipping them, I mean, they take the inmate, they put them in a County jail for their safety. However, that inmate gets transferred to another institution. So an investigation can never be done. So the accused officer actually comes back to their job in 90 days to continue being a predator. And the inmate is never to be heard from again. 14 of us decided to band together, stand up, and tell them that we were sick of the abuse. Mm -hmm. So they had to listen to us. You can't send 14 people to a county jail. Right. So, so were you all in prison at the time, all 14 of you? Yes. 
Okay. Yes, we were all at Coleman. Um, there was a lot of mixed reactions, <laughs> to say I, the I, least. I, I can imagine. Um, so what? I, I would think that you would have some fear for your safety. Um, um, yes, we were actually told by um, the investigator that we needed to stick together. We didn't need to be alone. But he wanted us there, so the investigation had to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, we were sitting ducks because the way the working camp is set up, there's no fence. So you, John, could walk up, especially if you were an officer. You could literally walk onto the campus, walk straight up to the dorm, pull a gun out, and shoot somebody. So there's zero security. Zero security. There is an officer that sits in what's called an officer station. However, the perimeter of the actual camp is non-existent. Hmm. The only thing preventing people from leaving is you're violating your Correct. And Correct. Your, Nobody wants to leave. <laughs> right, trying to get out of there. Right. Um, what, what would you say to people? Because you know, I just had a discussion a couple weeks ago with somebody talking about camps, prison camps, and people mm-hmm. think that they're very, you know, you're not really serving hard time and they're very laid back. And mm-hmm. um, what, what would you say to someone with that attitude um, going through what, what you experienced? Um, you know, any amount of time away from your family is a punishment. I believe that everybody needs to have repercussions for the things that they've done wrong. But instead of camps existing, you can put people on ankle monitors. You can put them on some kind of work release program. But, you know, those officers that did that to us, they get to go home every night, go home to their wives, be the perfect dad, the perfect husband. I have to live with this for the rest of my life. My life is forever changed because of the prison system and not in a good way. I can sit here and tell you all day long about, you know, being able to take classes. They're supposed to uplift us and protect us because anybody whose wife, child, and mother goes to prison, they're supposed to be protected to an extent and they're supposed to be safe. Here's the prime example. You have Larry Nasser, who is a child molester. He is at Coleman Federal Prison in United States Penitentiary 2. Two officers named in this lawsuit work at United States Penitentiary Number 2. So the very people that you have supervising him are going over to the prison camp and doing the exact same thing. Why aren't they in prison? so, So they don't even work at the camp. They are just coming over to the camp. Sometimes now, sometimes um, when they do job rotations, they request to go to the camp, but some of them do not. They come over to the camp to go to the facilities building. Um, A lot of the officers that worked at the institution came to our warehouse because they needed different things, you know, for their institution. So everybody that comes in and out of that camp does not necessarily work at the camp. And also Mm -hmm. the camp inmates work at the other institutions, whether it's cutting grass, cleaning lobbies. Because the campers can actually get in an F-150 truck, shit out keys, and drive to other institutions on the property. 
Mm-hmm. The camp inmates have full reign of that institution. They're the reason it runs. So getting into this, the, the lawsuit a little bit and, you know, what actually happened, uh, the, the abuse that was suffered, can, can you share about, you know, some of the, some of the abuse that, that occurred? Um, you know, a lot of the abuse is psychological abuse because, like I said before, most of the women that come into the prison system are broken. Whether, you know, they were abused as a child, they may have worked in the entertainment industry, the sex service industry, Um, you know, most women's confidence and esteem is very, very low. So you have these men that give them a little bit of attention or, you know, they take advantage of that and they groom these women because they're predators. Um, All 14 of these women come from different backgrounds. You named their, um, their array of ages. But, you know, um, any type of abuse is wrong and the degree that it suffered doesn't make it right either. It can be ranging from mental abuse to physical abuse to sexual abuse. Unfortunately, all 14 of us experience some level of sexual abuse from these officers. Um, And it ranged from one time to myself, I went through it for six months. And it was the end of my sentence. You know, and at the end of your sentence, you want to be strong. You want to be mentally prepared for the real world because let's face it, the world was different 10 years ago when I left it. The very first mm-hmm. iPhone just came out. <laughs> so, Dude. you know, just, just the technology alone was overwhelming for me. And also carrying all this, uh, this mental baggage has not made it any easier. Um. A few points that I want to hit on as far as, um, you know, the Bureau of Prisons and the way that they've actually handled this. Um, the warden, um, I can say his name, right? Because this is, you can look up this information. Warden Ocasio at uh, Coleman Federal Prison, when we sent that notice of intent to sue, he took early retirement two months later and the Bureau of Prisons gave him a $34,000 bonus on the way out. $34,000 just for, for what? Thanks for working for us. Have a nice life. Um, I think that story came out in, I want to say USA Today, um, wrote a story about that $34,000 bonus. The investigating officer that actually brought this to light that worked for Coleman was demoted from a special investigator for the prison. He was demoted and then he since has retired. Because the Bureau of Prisons could not silence us. Hey guys, just want to take a quick minute out of today's show to tell you about something that we're very excited about here at Lions of Liberty. Myself, Mark, and Brian, we are available to be speakers at your public or private events. We can you know, come on board and uh, analyze current events. We can MC events. We can uh, discuss and give speeches on specific topics, of which we, of course, all three of us are well-versed in different specific areas. You can check out our page on our website. We have a page, lionsofliberty.com slash speakers, where we detail out all of our offerings. I know this is the very exciting convention season in the Libertarian Party, so if you're looking for a very attractive and handsome and funny person to uh, headline or to give a uh, give a speech at your Libertarian Party convention, you can reach out to me. If you're looking for somebody who's funny and goofy looking, maybe reach out to Mark or Brian. 
I, I kid, I kid. But check it out, lionsofliberty.com slash speakers. We, we want to be a part of your next event. When you say when he brought it to light, when he brought the, some of the abuse to light? To- yeah, yeah. When he was actually following through with the investigation, he was mm-hmm. doing what he was trained to do, basically. Right. He was doing his job. Um, yesterday, um, I thought it was a funny story. Yesterday, ABC News did a story. Um, the deputy director for the Bureau of Prisons right now, Dr. Kathleen Hawk Sawyer, she actually um, put out a memo to her staff about staying off the internet during their shift. But I don't believe that there's ever been a memo to stop abusing and raping the inmates. So um, still, the Bureau of Prisons has not made this a priority. These investigations have been going on since the 90s. Um, I feel like the Bureau of Prisons cover this up better than the Catholic Church does. Because all of these lawsuits, all of these different things are getting paid by taxpayers' dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, when these, the um, Office of Internal Affairs took almost a year to come out and actually interview us to find out what was going on because the OIG refused to pick up any 14 of these cases. So then, of course, it went to the OIA. Um, basically, the OIA came out because they wanted to figure out a way not to pay these guys their pension or their benefits. But government employees are covered under what's called a Form B. A Form B, basically, they can admit to wrongdoing and nothing happens to them. So you have regular taxpaying citizens, get ac- let's say, get accused of something, and they can go to prison for 30, 40, 50 years. You have government employees admitting that they are sexually abusing inmates, which they are trained not to do getting away with it, scot-free, take your pension, take your benefits, have a nice life. You just can't work for the Bureau of Prisons anymore. So how do they get away with it? You said (laughs) it's called a form B. They basically admit their wrongdoing and they are not penalized because they admitted it. So. Wow. If, if I, if I admit to sexually abusing an inmate and I admit it before the investigation and before I can be criminally prosecuted, I am protected by the government. This is happening every day, every day. You know, it's so, so much of this. The unfortunate thing is a lot of the public, the view they have of prison is not, you know, they made him. I mean, I think the, the view, I, don't, I don't know what, what the percentages are, but I think a, at least the majority look at the people who are in prison and say, you know, you screwed up, you made a mistake, you deserve to be in the circumstances. Who cares if they're ideal or not? Right. What they're missing, which it's plain, plain, you know, plain as day. Most people who go to prison are going to get out of prison. Right. And when they get out of prison, you want them to, you know, to not have been abused that whole time they were in prison and and messed with mentally um, because when they come out, you want people to be able to reintegrate and be successful and add value and not be a safety threat. So it's, it's, it's amazing that more people don't understand that it's a very, very bad thing that we have a prison system that does almost nothing to reform people who go through it. Right. Right. And like I said, um, you know, I carry this with me every day. I'm, I'm forever changed. Um, per Social Security, a lot of people don't know this either. If you serve over 60 months in prison, 
you are considered by the federal government disabled. You can actually go down to your local social security office and get payment for every year that you were in prison. What? I've never heard that before. Wow. I'll have to send you the the form I have on it. But yes, we are considered disabled. I wonder how many people actually do that. I don't know. Someone actually, when I was at the halfway house, somebody actually brought out the form and brought it to my attention because I said, no way. No way. So you have this broken system that gets, you know, millions upon millions of dollars a year to rehabilitate, reform, reduce recidivism, given all these programs to make people better. However, the same people that you are hiring to, you know, uh, provide safety, security for the inmates as well as the general public, praying on the weak Mm -hmm. and getting away with it. Because let's face it, this has been going on since the beginning of time. And even though this lawsuit has been filed at Coleman against Coleman, it's going on right now as we speak. Because these people, they think it's a joke because nothing happens to them. So why would they stop? So what is the current status of the lawsuit? Um, the current status of the lawsuit is we're waiting to hear from the government. When was it filed? Um, it was the... Notice of intent to sue was filed last year. Anytime that you sue the government, you have to give them time to respond or settle out of court. Um, like I said, I can't get too far into it, mm-hmm. but um, the government is, I guess you would say, trying to figure things out on their end and what they want to do about the lawsuit. However, um, I was. Want me to? Yeah, come in. Chime in, Rosa. Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, my name is James DeMiles, and I'm an attorney here in South Florida, and I handle claims like this in federal court, state court as well, and I represent Lauren Reynolds in this lawsuit. So, John, it's uh, very simple. Uh, so what Lauren's referring to is she's going a little bit further back in the process. Uh, so to answer your direct question, the lawsuit itself, the complaint, which initiates the lawsuit, was filed December 3rd, 2019, and... Anytime you're filing a lawsuit in federal court under this particular federal statute, this is under the Federal Tort Claims Act, certain things, there are prerequisites uh, that you must go through in order to have a lawsuit survive a motion to dismiss. And so what happened here um, is the, the lawsuit itself is under the Federal Tort Claims Act, which is 28 U.S. Code 1346 subsection B, uh, specifically the allegation is that battery was committed by the guards here against the named plaintiffs, uh, and that the United States, through Coleman, uh, was negligent, uh, specifically through other employees of Coleman, uh, in the hiring, training, supervision, and retention of the guards, um, who were the at-fault guards here, we're alleging. However, in order to even file this lawsuit on December 3rd of 2019, all of these women had to go through the prerequisites. And what are those prerequisites? Uh, So the Bureau of Prisons has a four-stage, quote, administrative remedy program. That is 28 uh, Code of Federal Regulations, Part 542, Subpart B. Uh, First, they must attempt an informal resolution. They must raise the issue. Um, And then if that fails, there must be a formal written request. 
if they're not satisfied with that, then they can go to the warden. And if they're not satisfied with that, uh, they can appeal to the regional director and then the general counsel. If, as a part of this informal administrative process, uh, the issue is resolved to their favor, uh, then they don't have to go any, any further. You don't have to appeal anything if you've won, of course, right? And so at that point, uh, where they've done everything they can administratively, the federal statutes direct that at that point, they have to look at the federal statutes to determine what to do. And the federal statutes here state that the next step would be filing a lawsuit under the Federal Tort Claims Act. And in order to do that, you need to notify any targets of the lawsuit. And so here, uh, what they all had to do, what Lauren was referring to, uh, was the notice that had to be sent. Uh, it's a notice of intent to sue in federal court. Uh, you need to file that at least six months prior to filing the suit. That needs to be served. And then there's a negotiation process. Sometimes cases will settle within that time. Sometimes they don't. And if they don't, then a lawsuit is filed. So I was not Lauren's attorney at the time the lawsuit was filed. She had prior counsel. Um, and so when a lawsuit, when a complaint is filed and a lawsuit is initiated, the next step is that the defendants will have to respond to the complaint. Uh, sometimes they can file an answer and they can actually answer the allegations in the complaint. Um, but I would suspect here they'll probably file a motion to dismiss uh, because in federal court, if you don't file a motion to dismiss as the initial response of pleading, then you waive any grounds for dismissal based on what should have been raised at that point. Um, and so the question for, for myself as Lauren's new attorney is, do we want to, uh, when this motion to dismiss is filed by the defendants, do we want to go forward on this complaint or do we want to amend the complaint and go forward on some other complaint that we might make small changes to? Um, and so that's sort of where we're at now. I can tell you that the complaint was filed in the third, as I mentioned. Once it's filed, a summons is generated by the clerk's office. That summons, uh, the attorney who's representing the plaintiffs, then gets the summons, the complaint, and any other documents you want served on the accused, uh, and we have them served. And then once served, they have a, a certain window to respond. And so the lawsuit was actually only served on the defendant last week. And so the window of the defendants to respond has only begun as of last week. And so given the complexity of this case, the number of women involved, the number of people accused um, of these accusations, I would suspect there may even be um, a request for an extension and that whenever something is filed, whenever that responsive document is filed by the defense, uh, we will then react to their action. Well, th thank you for uh, for coming in with it. It's, it's very, very helpful. Very helpful information. I was struggling. I was struggling. <laughs> Um, Lauren, before I let you go here, uh, I just want to get, uh, you know, some, some takeaways from you. Um, you know, you're, we talked about in the pre-show chat that you're not really a hundred percent free yet. You're still on an ankle <laughs> monitor. Yes. So what are your, what are your plans going forward? Uh, you know, what things would you, would you like to accomplish here? Um, well, you know, being, um, silenced for so long, um, I didn't realize how much of a passion I would have for this every day that I was silenced, every day I was held back, every day that I was oppressed from the truth. Um, that Miami Herald story, um, I actually got with Romy, the the young lady that wrote it. And um, she really, I think, did justice for us. Um, I'm speaking out for the girls that are still incarcerated that still have no voice before I left. Um, 
I went to them individually and I told them, you know, I, I promise I, I will speak out for you. I will be your voice. So I am basically, you know, wanting to talk to anybody that will listen, anybody that, you know, might be in office that could be a vehicle of change mm-hmm. because this is a systemic issue and it needs to be addressed. So, um, you know, if this experience drives me for the rest of my life to single-handedly try and change the prison system, then I'm going to do it. Um, hopefully sometime soon me and Jimmy can get a meeting with Kushner or Cory Booker or Van Jones, people that were behind the first step act. So we could also, you know, do things for the actual institutions and what needs to be implemented and what needs to be changed. If they need a pre compliance officer, I would be happy to do it for the whole Bureau of prisons. So we can handle this. However, the change cannot be done unless people are willing to take action. So me coming on your show, I appreciate it because I'm willing to be the voice if people were be willing to be the vehicle for the change. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. And, you know, one thing that is pretty common throughout all of my guests is the need to want to change the system. Because I could totally understand people going through the prison system, then you just get you're done with it and you just want to wash your hands of it and right, move on. Right. But it's, it's so powerful that, and it's so giving it, it shows that there are a lot of people with a good heart to have gone through, you know, this, this terrible system and then turn around and say, you know what? I, I want to improve it. I want to make it better. I don't want someone else to suffer through what I suffered through. So I think that's a huge Testament to you for. Thank you. Uh, and you have this. to think of it, you know, when you lay down at night and, um, you know, I, I can lay down with a clear conscience because I know that I'm going to try to prevent it may be my sister, your sister, your mother, your daughter, because guess what? Everybody's one decision away from ending up in prison. Mm-hmm. It can it's happen to anybody. True. It can happen to anybody. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I've chose this. It, I'm not letting it choose me. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show. And we will definitely follow your case and uh, hopefully have you back on at a later date for a, uh, for an update. Of course. I would love to. Thanks. Okay. Thank you so much, John. All right. Thank you both. Thanks so much, John. Take care. Bye. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Lauren Reynolds and also hearing from her attorney, Jim DeMiles. You know, I said at the top of the show, how important this case is. And now that you've heard from Lauren, um, you've heard what she went through. You've heard just the, the absolutely unforgivable behavior that these uh, prison guards are, are able to get away with. It's just completely disgusting, completely disgusting. And I'm hopeful that you know something good will come from this case, obviously. Um, that's the reason why, why Lauren is suing. She's hopeful that she's able to make a dent in this oh-so-broken system. I brought up during this interview talking about Sort of when people hear about federal camps, you know, you think of uh, Martha Stewart, you think of uh, uh, Felicity Huffman going away to these federal camps. So Felicity Huffman was there for like five minutes, but Martha Stewart actually did a little bit of time in a federal camp. And as Lauren said, she had different experiences at these federal camps. But you can see how things can be so different from one camp to the next. All it takes is just getting maybe a prison warden or a culture that allows 
that allows, not only allows, but enables and covers up for this abuse to happen, the abuse of prisoners at the hands of the ones that are supposed to be uh, watching over them. So this is just a completely, this is such an important case, and we will be uh, you know, tracking it closely. I spoke with Jim uh, DeMiles afterwards, and we're going to keep in touch. There's also a couple other cases, high-profile cases, that he's worked on that I am hopeful that I'll be able to bring to you here uh, to discuss on Felony Friday. But we will definitely track Lauren's case. I am grateful uh, for Lauren to have the courage to come forward. Also grateful uh, to my friend Holly Houghton to uh, bring Lauren's case to my attention and to help to connect the two of us. Because the reason I do this show is to shine a light on cases just like this. And the Miami Herald did a great article. It's linked on the show notes page, lionsofliberty.com slash FF211. Check that out for sure. It's great. But that's not enough. I mean, so please, if you think it's important, if you think this interview was important, what you heard here today, um, if you think other people might be interested in hearing it, maybe people who aren't even libertarians, maybe people who are just interested in reforming the criminal justice system. We need to band together to change this system, my friends. Um, We're not going to do it with one political party. Uh, It's going to take a whole coalition of people who stand up and say enough is enough. Um, let's change the system from being one of uh, repression and abuse into one of reform and uh, success, one that leads to success after prison. When prisoners come out, they can add value to society and go on with their lives. That is uh, what we need in this country. So hopefully you guys uh, agree with me. If you do agree with me and you like what we're doing here at Lions of Liberty, that's fantastic. Um, you could just keep listening. That's cool. You could subscribe. That's even cooler. Or you can go to uh, patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty and uh, check our different support levels out there. And that would be the coolest, man. That would be the coolest way to support us. So... Thank you so much for listening today, for spending some time with me and hearing this very important story from Lauren Reynolds. And I hope you all have a great weekend. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.